Hello there, social work. 6533, advanced social policy students. I don't know what you're up to today. I don't know how your lives are going, but I do hope that they're going well. Um, my life is going pretty well. I'm recording this uh, late on Monday, Labor Day, and it's been a nice long weekend for me. I've done a lot of things. The weather has been really, really killer. It's been great. I like it a lot. I just got back from taking a walk where I planned out what I was going to say on this lecture, and the air was cool, crisp, you might even say, fallish, autumnal. I like that a lot. So uh, yeah, I'm in a pretty good mood here. And what I'm going to do in this podcast lecture is start to talk to you about these things that you read about in two PDF articles that I assigned this week. And these things are the four discourses. Now, I'm willing to bet that there might be a few of you that are reading these articles about these four discourses and you're thinking to yourselves, what are these I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. And you're in grad school. You're grad school students, right? So that means you're probably pretty good at being students. It means you're probably pretty smart, probably pretty good at reading things, understanding them, taking it in, integrating it into the knowledge that you already have, and then, you know, making use of it pretty quickly. And this might sort of be these the concepts in these articles are going to perhaps going to not follow that pattern. You're going to be introduced to concepts that are very foreign to you that in certain ways might even resist being integrated into your pre-existing bodies of knowledge. And uh, if I'm wrong about that, which I could be, maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, I get it. I'm good. This is, I understand. And if that's the case, wonderful. I'm, I'm really pleased by that. But if that's not the case, if you're reading this and you're having a hard time with it, you're having any kind of a struggle, what I want to do right here at the very beginning of introducing you to these concepts is to tell you that that is pretty natural and normal. I remember the first time I encountered the four discourses, I was really lost. I mean, like really lost. I was, I was interested in them. I thought they, they looked cool. I thought they sounded cool. I thought they sounded like a really powerful kind of thing that I could use to analyze what was going on in different relationships in the world around me. And I wanted to understand a lot about them. But the first time I was exposed to them, I, I really didn't. It took a while for me to, I think, start to cobble together a decent understanding of these things. And at this point in my life, I can say that I've done that. I've cobbled together a decent understanding of them. And I'm going to be sharing that with you, you know, through this podcast lecture and probably many more lectures to come and in a few class activities to come where we attempt to make use of these four discourses. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is we're going to be kind of doing things with these discourses over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be making use of them. We're going to be engaging with them. And I use the word engage because that's a fancy social work word. The Council of Social Work Education likes people like me, social work professors, to teach students like you, how to engage, assess, intervene, and evaluate. So we're going to be engaging the four discourses. Perhaps we're going to be using them as a tool to assess what's going on in things. We're going to perhaps try different interventions to see if our interventions have an impact on what discourse we're in. And then we're going to evaluate you know, the, the impact 
of our interventions. And when we evaluate it, we'll basically be seeing if our interventions have any kind of effect or, or change on whatever the dominant discourse is. So that's the fancy social work way of describing what we're going to be doing. The, the fancy council of social work education way, I should say. A much more simplistic way to describe what I am setting out to do here would be to say, we are going to play with the four discourses. And I say that because it's my opinion, this is not a fact, but it's my opinion, that we learn a lot by playing. It starts when we're kids. Kids learn so much about the world that they live in and they learn the vast majority of it through engaging in this thing called play. And then, you know, we, we progress through life. Children become teenagers and teenagers become adults. And as we progress through life, you know, uh, we stop saying to people like, hey, do you want to play? We, we don't use that term nearly as much as we did when we were kids, which is a shame because playing with things is an excellent, excellent, excellent way to learn things. And so what we're going to be doing with the four discourses is playing with them. That's how I would describe it anyways. And I want to use that word not only because playing is an excellent way to learn things, but also because I want to make it really clear to you that there aren't a lot of rules to this, right? We're not going to be going through this where I'm expect where I'm going to be giving you tests and quizzes to see that you understand the four discourses. I'm not going to do that. I'm not even having you write a paper to show that you understand the four discourses. We're going to be playing with the four discourses when we come together as a class. And I think I'm pretty confident that that kind of play will be, will result in us all learning something. I'll learn something. I'm sure, even though I probably know more about them than you do. I'll learn more as I, I play with them. You'll learn some stuff as we play about them. So uh, short version, if you are worried, if there's any kind of anxiety that you're experiencing when you read these articles because you uh, think it looks complicated and weird, uh, don't worry about it too much if you can. Just trust me. Know that we're going to have some playful, hopefully fun with this stuff. Trust that I can guide you along the path and that I'll get you to learn something as we play with these different things. So that's my intro. I'm going to play a little bit of music right here. And when we come back, I'm going to give you some context on these four discourses so you can kind of understand a little bit about what prompted Jacques Lacan, the man who created them, to create them. Here's some music. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows And we are back. So let's start off by talking about who Jacques Lacan was. Uh, and I'm not going to give you his whole biography here because I, I don't have that kind of time. But what I'm going to tell you is that he was a French person. He was a, friend, a very influential French thinker who knew a whole bunch of other influential French thinkers. Like he kind of, you know, would hang out with and have late night, com late night conversations with people ranging from Jean-Paul uh, Jean Sartre and Claude Lévi-Strauss to Foucault and Derrida and Deleuze and a whole bunch of other 
thinkers. If you don't recognize those names, don't worry about it. I'm just kind of giving you a bunch of, uh, if you, if you are familiar with French culture, you might be a little bit more familiar with them, but it's probably unlikely that a lot of you are familiar with French culture. So let me tell you a little bit about these names. All those names that I just mentioned were people who in France were like rock stars, but what made them a rock star was that they were doing really interesting intellectual slash academic work. I think that France might be one of the only countries that exists where somebody can become kind of like a rock star by doing things like anthropology or history or psychoanalysis, but France is a country you could do that. So Lacan hung out in that group and he was very influential in that group. Now, one of the things that made Lacan so influential was that he was an incredibly creative thinker and a very charismatic person. He would, he would give public lectures, which he called a seminar, and you know hundreds and hundreds of people would show up to these things. They were huge cultural events in France when he was giving them. And the reason that hundreds and hundreds of people showed up to these things is because Lacan was saying things about society. He was a social commentator. That's one of the reasons why I'm talking about him in an advanced social policy class. He was also a practicing psychoanalyst. So he was a clinician and he did clinical work with people, but he wasn't only interested in doing individual clinical work with individual people. I mean, he, he was extremely interested in that. He was very good at that. He was very successful at that. But addition, in addition to that, he was also somebody who had a lot of things that he wanted to say about the way that society functioned, the things that it did well, the things that it didn't do well. And he was doing this kind of following the tradition of Freud. Uh, I don't know how familiar with Freud all of you are, but you know most people, when they think of Freud, they think of Freud doing psychoanalysis uh, or, or doing some kind of therapeutic work with an individual person lying down on a couch in his office. And of course, Freud did that. Lacan did that too. But both Freud and Lacan were also people who were living through times of immense social change. You know, Freud lived through World War I, World War II. He saw the world that he knew come undone and get kind of recreated. He died in 1938, so he didn't see much of the world after World War II, but he lived through clearly these huge events that just radically reshaped the world that he lived in. Lacan lives through that too. He lives through the 1930s, you know, and the worldwide depression that happened in the 30s. He lives through World War II and the reordering of the world that happens after that. He sees the birth of things like nuclear weapons, uh, cheap air travel, uh, birth control, and the sexual revolution. He lives through those sorts of huge changes. He lives through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. He dies in the early 80s. So he too sees the world change. And as Freud and Lacan watched the world around them going through changes and they watched the various sorts of big institutions, the the governments of the world, the universities of the world, the churches and religions of the world attempted to cope with this change. They thought about that. They wrote about that. They taught about that. And that's one of the things that Lacan would do in his very successful seminar, his, his successful, well-attended public lectures, is he would talk a lot about what was going on in the world around him and everybody else, right? The changes that they were being subjected to and the changes that were reordering the status quo, the way that things were and had been for a really, really long time. One of the things that could be said about Lacan 
was that he lived at a time when you could still look behind you and see the exit from Freud's world. He didn't, he wasn't born in Freud's world. He wasn't raised in Freud's world, but he could see the exit from it. And what I think that means is that he was born in a time when he could still talk to people who remembered the world the way it was before World War I. He could, he could actually actively engage in those, with those people. He could ask them what was the world like, and they could tell him. Uh, you know, today we can still talk to people who remember what the world was like before the Vietnam War, for instance, right? We can talk to those people. Eventually, all the people who remember that will die, and, and then that will pass into, you know, true history. But for now, you know, we can look back and still see the exit from the Vietnam War and talk to people who lived through it. Lacan lived at a time when he could look back and see the exit of Freud's world, which was the Victorian world, which was the world that existed really before, up until World War I and really came to an end with the end of World War II. And this is interesting because as I say this, I hope I'm making this clear, but just in case I'm not, I'm going to say it really explicitly here. There's an idea that the world, the way that the world was organized, the way that governments functioned, the way that economies functioned, the way that, that people functioned in large groups was totally different prior to World War I. If you want to get a sense of how it was different, there's certain things that you can watch today that might help with that. At one point, not that many years back, there was a very popular, very successful TV show called Downton Abbey. And if you watch that TV show, those of you who did watch it, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. For those of you who didn't, I'll give you a brief description. Downton Abbey was a show that focused on this gigantic house, this, this huge estate in England. And what you saw is there was people who were aristocrats. They were lords and ladies who lived in this house and there was also a bunch of servants, butlers, footmen, maids, cooks, uh, chambermaids, etc., that also lived in this house, and they were a servant class. Like they, the, what they got from being employed is they they had a roof over their head and they had food given to them, but they had to work like crazy, and they were servants. They were seen as lower than, you know, the aristocrats that they served. This was what the world was like. That was Freud's world. Freud's world was a world that had immense, very, very total kind of rigid boundaries between classes, right? You were, you were servant class, working class, um, or aristocrat. There's probably some other classes in that too, but the important thing to recognize about that world is that, you know, somebody like Jeff Bezos, you know, who is now one of the world's richest people, he would not have been able to exist in Freud's world. He would have been born into probably a servant or working class family, and that's where he would have stayed for his whole life because it was impossible for people to move from, you know, servant class or working class to the the top of the social pyramid. You just couldn't do that, ultimately. The state was run by monarchs, by kings and queens in Europe. Um, they had colonies. There was huge, you know, colonies that, that they had set up and that they still had a lot of control over. There were traditions that needed to be upheld. People, you know, would dress a certain way for certain occasions, usually very fancy. 
Um, it, it was a, a world that also had stable, stable institutions. The church or the churches, very, very powerful institutions in that time. They controlled a lot of public opinion about what was acceptable and unacceptable. You know, in, in Freud's era, for example, uh, if you were somebody who was an aristocrat, if you were a king or a queen or a lord or a lady, a duke, I don't know, something like that, uh, you couldn't get divorced. That was just out of the question. Can't do it. You know, now nowadays, of course, divorce is very commonplace. Uh, a lot of people get divorced regardless of their economic circumstances. But back then, it was it was scandalous for people to get divorced. Uh, sexuality was kept very much under wraps. It was not something that people discussed publicly. Also, very different than the way that things are today, uh, and all that. So that was the world that Freud lived in. And again, Lacan could look back and see the exit of that world. Everything in that world changed after World War One. World War One was a war that the uh, aristocratic kind of monarchs got into and people had to fight it. And it was an extremely destructive war that killed such a large number of young people. Uh, and afterwards, the, the population of Europe was never the same. Like people who had been servants or working class prior to the war, prior to World War I, I should say, uh, they came back and they weren't necessarily as prepared to go back to a life where they were seen as lower than um, aristocrats, many of whom those aristocrats didn't actually do anything to defend their countries, their states, and all that. Uh, after World War II came, we saw another major reordering of the world. You know, the World War II, of course, brought the atrocity of the Holocaust. It brought uh, chemical weapons were being used in war for some of the first times uh we had other kind of like extremely destructive machine guns being used it it was a, a catastrophic war from a technological standpoint and from a social standpoint human beings were able to take technology and use it to kill such a huge number of people so efficiently and and that changed the way that the world worked um, also Europe never really covered from world war one. So by the time world war two came around and was fought, they were still recovering from that. And then world war two left Europe, which at that time was kind of like the center of the world. It was the dominant power in the world. And after those two wars being fought so close together, it no longer was the dominant kind of area of the world. Domination shifted westward and came here to the, to the United States. Uh, today we may be living from a time where living through a time where domination might shift again within our lifetimes, right? Right now, it's. I think uh, there's a lot of smart people who suggest that it's possible that kind of like world, uh, the center of world power could move from the United States to China. Maybe that will happen, maybe it won't, but uh, I don't know. But what I am saying is in Lacan's time, he lived through that change. He lived through that um, kind of downfall of Europe and uh, rise of America. Some people say that Lacan lived in a postmodern world. What does that mean? Well, it means that he lived in a world post the use of nuclear weapons, post the Holocaust, post the 1960s and the sexual revolution. Uh, and that, that was the end of modernity and the beginning of this thing called postmodernity, or so people say. Which brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, the four discourses. So let's play a bit of transition music. And when we come back, let me explain the first part of these four discourses, which I think is important for you to know. Oh, 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 
All right, so thing number one. Uh, I mentioned that Lacan could look back and see the exit from Freud's world. Lacan came up with his lecture on the four discourses in the year 1969, right? And he came up with these after living through one of the most tumultuous years of the 1960s, 1968. In 1968, a lot of things happened. I don't want to get too far into those things because they're all really interesting. And if I start talking about them, I probably won't stop talking for a while. So let's just say real quickly here that 1968 was a super interesting year. Lots and lots and lots of social change happened. Um, you know what? I have to tell you a little bit about this. Uh, if you think about some of the social changes that happened in the 60s, they, they were massive. You had the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You had, uh, this is something that undid the Jim Crow South in the United States. It was uh, a huge attempt to try to make institutions behaving in racist ways far more difficult than it had ever been. You, you had a huge attempt to start to kind of like export democracy to people who traditionally hadn't had access to it. it. It was a crazy time. And there were some people, of course, who loved that. And there was other people who didn't love that. That's something that went on there. You had uh, the sexual revolution. Birth control became uh, far more readily available you know, than it had been previously. So much happened uh, during these times, and Lacan lived through it. And by the time he got to 1969, the end of the 1960s, he gave this lecture which focused on these things called the four discourses. And one of the points of that lecture, there was many points, but one of the points was to say that the dominant discourse, the, and a discourse is just a way that, that most people tend to engage the world, right? And we have four of them. And one of them tends to be the discourse that the majority of people are kind of enacting in some way, shape, or form. So one of Lacan's arguments was that in Freud's day and era, in the modern era, the dominant discourse, the discourse that dominated the world and that most people found themselves contained within, was this thing called the discourse of the master. And that discourse was a discourse where there were people who had power, authority, and control, and they told people who were in various positions to do things and to make stuff happen, and people did that. And that's the way that the world worked. It was stable. It was predictable. It didn't allow for people to rise out of their classes. It didn't, didn't, uh, it was a very rigid structure, but it was a stable and predictable structure. That was what Freud lived in. Then we have World War I, World War II, and then the aftermath of World War II, the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And by the time we get to the end of the 60s, Lacan is suggesting that we're no longer primarily in the discourse of the master, that we've shifted to a new discourse that most people are now operating in what he called the discourse of the university. Now that title is a little bit misleading because it makes people think of universities, schools. Uh, I think a more appropriate way to describe that would be to say, he said, we live now in the discourse of the institution. And what is an institution? an institution? A school is an institution. A church is an institution. A hospital is an institution. A jail is an institution. Uh, those are A court is an institution. Those are institutions. And what Lacan was suggesting is that in Freud's day and age, there were individual people like kings and queens, heads of state, 
you know, presidents and prime ministers who happened to have a lot of power. And the power was very much centered on individual people. And uh, you could see that at the macro level, like I just said, in kings, queens, and stuff like that. But you could also see it in more of like a local level. So uh, in that show that I mentioned, Downton Abbey, there would be a lord, and the lord was kind of like the head of the village. And it was a hereditary title that was passed down, you know, from uh, parents to their offspring. And that was the stable way of ordering things at that time. Lacan noticed that after the end of World War II, you know, through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, that all came to an end and power was no longer centered on individuals who had things like hereditary titles. Instead, it was focused on institutions. It was, and I'll give you some other examples of institutions. Labor unions were institutions. Universities were institutions. Um, Political parties like the Republicans and the Democrats, those are institutions. And he started to say that those were the things that had power, were institutions. And this is a really, really massive shift. It might sound like not such a big deal as I'm describing it here and now in this podcast lecture, but what I'm trying to communicate to you is that that's a major deal. That's a huge fundamental, like seismic, tectonic shifting of the way that the whole world works and and all the people in the world the way that they work too and that's something that we're going to be talking about more when we come together as a class i just kind of wanted to set it up for you in this podcast lecture so hopefully listening to this you're kind of interested now you're you're starting to think "Ooh, maybe these could be really cool i hope that's the effect it's having i, I also hope that you'll all come to class on thursday with questions for me read these articles, listen to this lecture, come up with a question. I'm going to start class by asking all of you to tell me one question that you have about the four discourses. Some of you may have the same question. That's okay. Don't worry about it if that happens. But that's what we're going to do. We're going to open with that. So please come prepared with some kind of a question that you want to ask. If you do that and you trust me, we'll play with these discourses interesting things will happen. We'll learn stuff. It'll be cool. And I think that's all I have to say for now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. I look forward to seeing you all in class soon. Until then, make glorious mistakes. You've got to learn the fundamentals. It's true. We'll start with sounds and letters and